Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. As you may know, Carl is the host of the 30 Love podcast, which is also well worth your listening time. So when we've wrapped up our hour or so here, I hope you'll check that out if you haven't already. Uh, We're recording this on Monday afternoon, October 22nd. So there's 3.9 matches in the books of the WTA Tour Finals or the championships in Singapore. We're still waiting for a final result on Kerber and Burton's by the time you... But by the time you listen to that, unless there's some kind of weird indoor rain delay, um, you will know the result of that match. But before we get to the the tour finals, we have a lot to say about that. But I wanted to touch on a couple of other WTA-related issues. And the first one is something we tried last week was to try to forecast a player without knowing who it actually is. And it, I, give, I, I give you and Carl a... Um, a general profile of a player's age and rank and their achievements and so on. And we try to forecast what their career is going to be like without, without the maybe biases or, or um, preconceived notions that come with knowing who the player is. It didn't work out that well last week because Carl knew from about my third word that it was born at Chorich. So we're going to make it a little harder for him and for you. And here's who I want to try to forecast. Imagine you've got a WTA player who is... Born at George. Okay, sorry. Who is born at George. Yes. So Carl is definitely off track at this stage. Um, You've got a WTA player who's a a little bit short of her 19th birthday, and she's just broken into the top 10 for the first time. Um, She's been known as a prospect for quite a while, and she's got a reasonably balanced game, maybe, maybe a little more aggressive than passive, but nothing too extreme. She's she's won a couple of titles, including a premier title. She's beaten several top ten players, including a couple of top five players. Um, I, I didn't check this before. I didn't have this in my notes, but I'm pretty sure she's, she's the youngest person uh, ranked in the top ten at the time she breaks in. So, given that profile, Carl, what would you what would you expect career wise from that player? Peak ranking of number two and one slam title. Only one, really? Yeah. So you're thinking, is that sort of a weighted average where you're figuring there's a small chance this person becomes a, a megastar? Or are you thinking that the, the profile makes you think it's likely to be someone who's a great but not greatest of all time type player? It's really just a generic caution and a kind of median forecast. So that's my best guess of like the midpoint of possibilities, but there's probably a long tail of much greater achievement given that she's in the top 10 just before turning 19. That's that's a really, really promising start. It is. So, so what do you think, let's phrase this a slightly different way. What do you think the odds are that she gets at least one slam title? 64%. 64%. I love the precision. I should have I should have returned the favor and told you that she's 18.8 years old when she broke into the top 10. I think that's right. So, okay. Oh, well, that changes everything. <laughs> Didn't I say she was a, a month or two away from turning 19? Yeah, but the decimal really brings it into focus. Yeah, there's a there's a decimal bias 
um, that you need to factor in. So, so okay. Now, what if I tell you we've got a 21-year-old who has been in the top 10 in her career. She got injured, missed a lot of time, has struggled somewhat to come back. So she's still quite young, but she's just now gotten back into the top 40. Um, has I don't think she's won a, a tour-level title since the ones when that got her into the top 10. So with that, I think it's two and a half years or three additional years of knowledge about her. What do those three years do to the forecast? It hurts. I mean, you really expect the years 19 to 21 to be upward years, not every single moment, every single month, but generally speaking that you'd have more recent accomplishments, better recent accomplishments and a higher ranking and maybe have even pocketed your first slam title if you were in the top 10 that early. And the main thing that can derail that is injury. And I think we've said before in the show that everyone is somewhere on a spectrum of health. It's, it's not just injured or not injured, but this sounds like a serious enough injury to think, well, this injury could recur. So it's not just about the time loss, but about the potential future time loss. Plus, it's harder to make a run at big tournaments from a ranking of 40 than it is from a ranking inside the top 10 because of buys and seeding. So we know her peak ranking is already in the top 10, but I don't know, maybe now it drops down the expected one career-wise to something like number five or six. We didn't actually say where, where she was. So if she was already better than that, then go better and less likely to win a slam title, assuming she hasn't already, which I think we're supposed to. Yeah, she hasn't. I mean, a lot of women have won slam titles in this three-year period, but she's not one of them. Um, and what what do you think the odds have gone, have decreased to for winning at least one slam? Maybe by half. So, so down to 32%. Now? Yeah. It's still fairly high for a 21-year-old just in the top 40. That's interesting. I mean, I, but I, it's the path. I mean, you and I have, have talked and you've done the actual research and, and I have just done the talking, but it, it does seem significant how quickly and how high someone rises in the rankings in their career, even if there are if there's an unconventional path that that tells you something about their potential that, that could be realized at some later age, even if it hasn't been by 21. Yeah, definitely. And, and certainly these days, I mean, nothing's over at 21. I mean, some careers have barely even gotten started. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? I have to admit I don't, which is embarrassing to me that I didn't know if someone... Oh, oh, uh, are we talking about Benchich? We are talking about Benchich. Nicely done. Okay. I, I feel good about those forecasts knowing that. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think I might have been a little bit more optimistic about Benchich at the time um, when she did break into the top 10, especially since... I think that the field of really promising youngsters wasn't as crowded as it is right now. Um, it isn't like she was competing for sports center time with Sabalenka. Um, but yeah, and, and she... And she had some really good wins. She did. I, she yeah, did. I mean, it was a bit tough to summarize them because a couple of her really good wins were by retirement. I think she, she won the Toronto or Montreal final against Simona Halep, and that was a third set retirement. So it's kind of tough to know how much credit to give her for that. But yeah, I mean, tons of top 10 wins. Uh, it was a really impressive year for someone who basically came out of nowhere to do it. Yeah, and I think that what you were saying that you expected more at the time, I, I tend to do this too. I think 
there's a kind of, un, and maybe you weren't doing this, but what I'm about to say, so sorry for presuming, but for me, I think there's an unconscious bias of because we haven't seen them be injured, we don't think of that possibility. But from a the perspective of we don't have much prior knowledge either way about how they're going to hold up on tour for a long time, then we can sort of assign them the the typical probability of, of having a serious absence for injury. And, and that probability is maybe not 50 over a two-year period, 50%, but it's it's high. Yeah, it's certainly... Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I don't know whether that's what I was doing, but you... I, I think it, it's so common that when people are making forecasts and not acknowledging the injury risk, then they kind of expect you to know that that's what they're talking about. So... If I say, you know, I'm looking at an 18.8 year old Belinda Bencic and saying that she has a decent shot to be number one within two years, what I'm really saying is, barring injury, she has a decent mm-hmm. shot of being number one in two years. And, you know, you and I like percentages. So as soon as you have a barring injury uh, phrase there, then it makes the whole thing meaningless. I mean, is that. Well, it's a conditional probability. But yeah, it's it's not really saying of all possible worlds, you know, of like the 100 most possible scenarios in 50, she's number one. We're saying of the 100 most possible healthy scenarios, which is a big if. Right. And it also, I mean, there's so many conditional scenarios like that, that it it does feel like injury is a, is a separate one from, you know, failing to improve or, I don't know, being unable to, losing 10 miles an hour off your first serve or... Drug suspension. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that could prevent someone from improving, but injury is the one that we just kind of treat as almost like an act of God, Uh, which maybe maybe if we're looking at a 19-year-old who's never really been injured, then... I mean, maybe from an actuarial perspective, we have to treat it as an act of God. We, we can't look at her physical. Uh, so we don't have any information other than the fact that we haven't noticed any information, basically. So it's we have, we have nothing to go on to make that prediction. So we probably should know better what the generic forecast is. So we know that maybe there's a, like you said, it's not 50%, but let's say there's a 20% chance that she misses significant time in the first in the next three years of her career and make forecasts based on that but but yeah it's 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 tricky one of the hypotheses given for the aging of the tours and aging has happened much more on atp than wta but still happened on both is that the younger players can't hang on the tour physically and one thing i haven't seen broken down is to the extent that is true or to the extent that looks like it's true, how much of it is just they can't compete and how much of it is they get injured, which are probably related because if they're not competing physically, then they might be slightly injured but healthy enough to play. But it's a different thing being getting injured enough to not be on tour at all. Yeah, and that's another issue as well is you have kind of different sorts of injuries, and we've seen that even in Benchich's case where – after she cracked the top 10, she had a pretty mediocre season, but she did mostly play it out. Uh, she lost a lot of first-round matches. Uh, her ranking fell quite a bit, but she didn't miss that many tournaments uh, that year, which I think is 2016 that I'm talking about. Then she did end up missing maybe six months or so at a stretch. So some players never have the full, the time fully off from the tour, and, and it's tough to, from an analytical perspective, it's tough to look at their results and say... 
this is an this is a period of injury rather than this is a period of poor results, even if the poor results were largely due to injury. Uh, that's one of the things that makes this sort of forecasting so difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that could lead someone who is, in some sense, injured to still play, including getting advice medically that there's nothing they need to do right away in terms of surgery, let's say, and there's no benefit to resting. And then there's also, you know, guarantees from different tournaments and the potential risk of, of breaking contracts and sponsors wanting them to play. And sometimes they don't even really know what the problem is. So they, they, they have to sort of figure it out themselves. And it's it's not something that we can glean except maybe from a retirement or maybe from the player saying something in a press conference, which itself can often be controversial because fans of other players will say, oh, he or she is just making excuses. So it's, as you say, it's it's not something that you can pull out of the match stats. Yeah, and, and if you want to look at a large pool of players for forecasting purposes, it's, even if people, even if we do have press conference transcripts, then that's not something that's very easy to parse and throw in a database to get a sense of what happens to the average player when they make certain comments about their health. I guess you've, you've talked about, or other people have talked about looking at serve speed, right? Like maybe that's sort of like looking at pitch speed for baseball pitchers as a possible indicator of health. Yeah, that's true. And that would catch some things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's worth only certain to. parts of the body. Right. Yeah, but yeah, that's it's better than nothing, and, and maybe someday if we have more Hawkeye data, there are other things we can look at as well, just speed moving around the court, first step, that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's actually uh, a good accidental segue, talking about speed moving around the court. We have a lot of things that we could talk about with the WTA Finals. At this point, we're mostly still previewing it, since there's four matches in the books and eight more round-robin matches to come. Um but the first person I wanted to talk about was Sloane Stevens. Since we're recording this on Monday, we know that Stevens won her uh, won her first match today against Osaka. That was a three setter. She ended up winning six one in the final set, and I don't. I think she was the underdog going into that, and she's definitely the underdog at, according to my Elo ratings. My ratings have her down at something like twentieth, so not even close to deserving to be in this field according to that algorithm. But of course, she was the runner-up at Roland Garros. She won a premier mandatory. So according to the WTA computer, she very much deserves to be here. Um, Carl, at the risk of, of talking way too much about Sloan on this podcast, since we've been over some of this ground before, do you think she's, do you think she's at the same level as these other women, d- despite what Elo says about it? I think so. One of the quirks of, not quirks of ELO, one of the features of ELO is that you, when you're at a certain level in the sport, a very high level, you are going to have your biggest movement, the highest leverage matches in a way, are going to be against much lower ranked players. And you can only drop. You can gain a little bit by beating them. You can gain a bit more by beating players above you, but they're not that many players above you and they won't be that far above you. So if you're prone to losing more often to worse players or players lower rated in ELO, then you're going to be further down in ELO without that necessarily reflecting how you're going to do at the tour finals where everyone is is highly rated. 
I'm not saying that that's exactly all that's happening with Stevens and she would have a higher rating if she'd had more big wins this year, but she, she has had since her, her run that started in the U S hard courts or the North American hard courts in 2017, she's had a lot of bad losses and that's just going to limit how high her ELO is, but there are no bad losses in Singapore. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about doing this, but I wonder what would happen if we ran ELO with, let's say, only top 20 ranked players uh, and and see how that comes out. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if Sloan looked better in that rating than she did in the current one. Um, it would It would be throwing out even more information, so probably even less predictive, but still kind of interesting from a tournament preview perspective uh, to do for Singapore or for really any tournament, the ELO just based on the field in the tournament and see if that looks different. Yeah, and that that might be something that... Well, there's a couple of different things there that are testable. The first, the first one is just some version of what, what I suggested, just limited to the top 20 or... And, and see whether it gives you better results. Because you're right, you'd be throwing out a huge amount of information. And usually that that's that's why I don't even consider doing things like this. Because e- even though we do have some sort of oddball players or players with oddball results like Sloan has, um, it's generally not a good idea to throw away a bunch of your data and hope to get better results. But, I mean, maybe it's plausible in this case. But I, I like your version of that even better to to test based on the field in the in the tournament. And you could even take that one step further and if, you, if you're measuring Sloan's chances in a tournament, you could look at the players she's likely to face and, uh, and do an ELO rating just with those players involved. So, I mean, you end up eventually reducing it just to head-to-heads, but maybe there's somewhere sort of in between the, the pure ELO, including every match on tour versus the really specific how has Sloan played against Osaka and Kiki Burton's and Angelique Kerber. So maybe, yeah, I mean, there's something that should be slightly better than head to head, just in terms of waiting when the, the matches like happened in sequence and, and where the players were when they played. And, um, the, the, just the raw head to head doesn't do it, but I don't know how much you, you gain by, by introducing those factors too. Yeah. I mean, more things to test. Definitely some potential there. Um, another factor that I don't think you exactly said this about Sloan, but but there does seem to be some streakiness to her results. That's something we've talked about quite a bit too. That the the ranking, like the official rankings, tend to reward streaky players because if, if you are going on a win streak, then like, you're probably winning a tournament, or you're, at least you're going deeper in tournaments. Even if that also means you have a, a losing streak of embarrassing first round matches. And I was reading Steve Tigner's preview for the, the WTA finals, and he referred to Angelique Kerber as a confidence player. I think he might have also used the term form player. I've, I've heard them both, and I think they're more or less interchangeable, even if the, the motivations are a little different. The idea is that I mean, either with you have a streak of good form or you get confident from winning and you win more. The end result, I think, in terms of the results on paper, is streakiness. Um, just start with with Tigner's claim, Carl. Do you think do you think that's plausible that, that we can call Kerber a confidence player who has more streaks than you'd otherwise expect? Yeah, it's definitely plausible. It's it's 
confidence is different from like shoulder in that it's, it's <laughs> inside someone. So it's, it's even they might not be able to tell you whether that's the case. Uh, they may not know or may not want to. I do wonder if, you know, we were talking before about injury with absence versus injury without absence from tour and Kerber went from that fantastic 2016 season to a really disappointing 2017 season and she basically played it and she just had a lot of bad losses and I don't think she really had retirements so maybe she was nursing a shoulder injury we didn't know about maybe she was nursing a confidence injury we didn't know about uh the the data is not inconsistent with that hypothesis. I don't know if it's a if it's realistic to make it a testable hypothesis. That reminds me, I, I, I didn't think about this when I was planning out this episode, but we haven't talked about Kerber splitting up with her coach, Vim Fassett. Um, and that decision has already been made. And it's, a, I think, a big surprise because he's... He seems to be a really good coach. He's he's led a lot of players, including Kerber, to to improved results. I mean, as you point out, Carl Kerber had a great 2016, a pretty disappointing 2017, and then a very good 2018 again. So, any idea what's going on there? I mean, do you think that's a potentially a good thing for Kerber to to drop the coach who helped her get back to the top? Do we know for sure that she dropped him? Hmm. I. Th- I think that's how it's been presented in the press. I wouldn't swear to that, but okay. I, maybe all we know is that they split. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's almost as hard to know why players and coaches split than, than to know whether they're confidence players or how high their confidence is at any given moment, just because issues like pay and travel and compatibility with the rest of the team and offers from other players can all be factors. But but also, I think we've talked about this before, that there may just be only so much that a player that a player has to hear from a coach and has kind of heard it already. And that's not to say it's not valuable, but the value has already been realized and, and incorporated into the player's game. So I don't know much about his or really many coaches' specific styles, but to the extent that they have like a very clear mantra that they're sharing as opposed to one that adapts and changes as the players opponents and conditions change that that may also just put a sort of natural time cap on a relationship but yeah i mean maybe there was a big blow up maybe there's big drama maybe there was something more interesting than what i just offered but um we haven't heard anything like that so i i think it could just be something more mundane like okay i'm ready to to hear from someone else now i thank you for your service yeah, and it's not it's not the first time that Facet has moved on after a year with a player. Uh, so it it might be partly what he wants to do. I I haven't seen this in any of the commentary about this online, but if I remember correctly, when when he split up with Halep, that was also after a year. And what I heard at the time was that he was asking for a lot more money to come back for a second year. Like, I mean, multiples of what he he made in their first year together, and maybe he feels like if he keeps trying that, if he keeps taking players to the top, eventually someone's going to agree to give him, I don't know, 30% of their prize money or something. I'm totally speculating at this point, but that was one of the things that was floating around after he split with Halep, and that could always be a factor. I mean, you you could like a coach, but 
only want to pay a coach so much. And, and as, as you point out, Carl, maybe she's already gotten the good parts of what, what he can offer, at least at a macro level. I would be fascinated to know the structure of these contracts. I mean, you could imagine I will give you 30% of any prize money above X, some baseline. And so it's like a very strong incentive-based contract to, to get a player to a certain level. Uh, it, it's also, I guess, like with coaches and managers and other sports, very common for a coach to have something comfortable to, to fall back on, like an academy, like commentary, and maybe, you know, a year on tour is stressful enough and stressful in someone's personal life enough that you're, when, when they're significantly raising their price, they're really saying, this is how much it's worth it to me to not be on tour. So you've got to like top that to get me back on tour. Uh, you know, I think a lot of these, these decisions end up being pretty rational. That's just a mismatch between what someone needs to do something somewhat unpleasant. And, you know, these coaches are making a lot less relative to players than I think than their counterpart coaching counterparts in other sports. Yeah, I would guess that's true outside of maybe the top few, like maybe Yvonne Lendl makes a lot more uh, when he's advising Murray or Zverev or something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, there's only so much they can make outside of the coaches for the top five or 10 players. Uh, right, because the players aren't not making aren't making that much. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, and and we do see even some of the top coaches like Darren Cahill who are moonlighting, doing commentary during the slams or all sorts of different things. Um, Cahill, I, I'm sure, is affiliated with with some academy or something in Las Vegas. So, so yeah, yeah. there's. Um, I think I think you're right, Carl, to say these these decisions are mostly rational, but we, there's so many things we don't know. And it's apparently just the nature of tennis that we're going to be stuck speculating about a lot of things that, that we don't know, unlike in, say, baseball, where everyone seems to tell everything to the team's beat writer, and it's a lot of it ends up out in the open very quickly. I also wonder if, in some cases, now that players, many of the top players travel with whole teams, how clearly delineated everyone's roles are. Like, I think sometimes they're effectively getting something that you could consider coaching from other people on their team. And that sometimes leads to clashes, but it might also lead to players thinking, oh, well, maybe this is as much coaching as I need anyway. My hitting partner isn't going to just hit with me. He'll also have some some thoughts about what I'm doing. Uh, there are lots of people in my box watching my matches, and they all have things to offer about them. Maybe I don't need this particular really expensive coach in addition anymore. And it also raises the option of if if coaches are raising their price because it's it's a difficult lifestyle, it's so much time, then it, the fact that there are more fleshed out teams mean that you can be more flexible with what the coach's job is in the first place. So I remember last year, Darren Cahill didn't go along for the Asian swing with Simona Halep. Um, I mean, part of the reason he didn't jump back into coaching uh, before he ultimately did decide to, to help out Simona Halep was because he wanted to spend more time at home with his family. And you can't, you can't do that very easily if you're traveling full-time with a player. So Andre Pavel was sort of a, a substitute short-term coach for Simona during the Asian swing. I think um, even this week, Kamal Murray is not in Singapore. Um, he's doing something at home. So, so Sloan's hitting partner is basically serving as coach this week. And this, I don't think this is exactly what you're pointing out, Carl, but, but you're right to say that like, 
a hitting partner can do a lot of what a coach can do on a day-to-day basis. And some of the things that a coach, like the head coach needs to do, don't need to be done from the coach's box. I mean, if, if Kamal Murray is this sort of uh, savant of match prep, then he doesn't need to be in Singapore to give Sloan a game plan to play Naomi Osaka. I mean, he, he can watch the same video at home. So, and he can watch the video of that match and deliver feedback and thoughts, you know, just as fast. She can get it on her <laughs> phone in the locker room. Yeah, he can probably even text the hitting partner for on-court coaching purposes. Uh, I mean, it's there's not a whole lot of reason that he physically needs to be there. I mean, I, I can understand it needs to be a, mostly a face-to-face relationship. But if it can only be a face-to-face relationship 20 weeks a year instead of 30 weeks a year, it seems like that's a decent trade to make if if the benefit of that trade is you get Darren Cahill or you get Kamal Murray and you otherwise would have to settle for a coach that didn't do as much for you. Are you telling to... listeners that you're texting Cahill during Simona matches to give thoughts for, to pass along to her? Carl, you should you should know this. I don't even have a SIM card. I can't text <laughs> anybody. <laughs> I mean mail a letter to the arena. Yeah, yeah. I, I mail some letters to the arena, but even even in Norway, the postal service is internationally it ends up being pretty slow uh, so i don't think they ever get them maybe maybe at grand slams by the by the final maybe that's why simona finally won the the french open title this year because all those letters arrived late in the second week she opened them up and it said hit to her backhand and she's like which who's what are you talking about we got to work on the system yeah it's it, it i should definitely get a sim card that's the the takeaway here so not a not a slick segue at all. One other topic I really wanted to talk about with the field at the at, at the Singapore Finals is something that Caroline Wozniacki said. And as usual, as an analyst, I'm going to ascribe way too much importance to what was probably a throwaway comment, but that's kind of what we do. So bear with me. She said, "I think I think the question was asking her about how the field had changed since." she made her debut at the tour finals, which I believe was in 2009. And she said she thought the field had gotten a lot stronger. Uh, and that I agree, by the way, but I I think a lot of fans and pundits wouldn't agree because you hear so much about this parody in the, on the women's tour and um, dare I say chaos. I mean, there's no consistent winners. Um, some people see that as, as being a weakness, especially since there's the, still the perception that Serena can show up and beat anybody on the week she deigns to play. So Wozniacki has made this claim that in the last 10 years or so, the field has gotten stronger. And I looked up who the field was in 2009. Um, and in, I think this is rank order, we have Dinara Safina, Serena Williams, Svetlana Kuznetsova, Wozniacki, Elena Dementieva, um, Victoria Azarenka, Venus Williams, and Yelena Yankovic. This is all their versions in 2009. And Carl, I'm I'm curious what your feeling is on that. It, setting aside Serena, because I mean she's still in the field even if she's not there in Singapore. So if if if, if we pretend Serena was there in Singapore this year, how do you think how do you think the 2018 field does compare to to those eight women back in 2009? Is it an improvement? First, I need to clarify on Serena. What do you mean that she is in the 2018 field? I just, I, I, if, I, if we're comparing the, 20, the 2009 field to the 2018 field, I don't want to say the 2009 field is better because Serena's there. So basically, 
pretend the 2018 field does have Serena. If we're if we're comparing the 2009 season to the 2018 season, we have Serena in both. So let's pretend we have her in both of the finals fields as well. Okay. All right. Uh, so there are a few thoughts here. For career accomplishments, the 2009 field wins handily, but that's a dumb way to do it because those careers are done or close to done. And in the 2018 field, we have careers that have, in some cases, more potential than actuality, especially for Osaka and Stevens, I mean, who already have slam titles and in Stevens' case, a second slam final, but are so young that you know, they could go on to accomplish far more than most of the 2009 field did. The, so, so I think with that balance, even though there are some rather old members of the 2018 field who might already have accomplished most of what they're going to, I think Waz is right. With, again, assuming that we're not considering Serena, who didn't qualify this year. The, the other thing that we often talk about on the show is that the sport keeps getting better in general on average, which is just true of sports generally because of the people just figuring out better how to play the game, how to prepare for the game, how to get their bodies ready for the game. In the particular question of has the WTA gotten stronger over the last 20 years, I think the answer depending on how you look at it, it is, is spottier than most 20-year periods would be. But I think it's it's especially spotty if you compare like 2005 to 2015, whereas looking at 2009, where maybe it was already slightly on the decline from the period where we had many four-plus major players near their prime, to 2018, where maybe we've picked up a bit from some of the lower points of overall strength, I think we probably are stronger in 2018 than 2009. But it, but it probably is something that we can check instead of just sort of reasoning out. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I, I did something for Tennis Magazine a few years ago. I think it ended up getting published in Tennis Magazine, where I... I I tried to do an algorithm that I'd done for baseball before. I think we talked about this a couple. Yeah, we did talk about this in the roundtable episode a few weeks ago. Um, that it it did pretty unequivocally show that the the overall level of the top fifty on the ATP was getting better every year. I didn't I didn't do it with women's tennis because I think I wanted to do it with match stats, and I don't have match stats for most of women's tennis more than a, maybe five or six years back at this point. So I'm not exactly sure how you would do it. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. What are the downsides of using, and I know there are, but I always forget what they are. What are the downsides of using ELO to compare across eras? Yeah, it, it, it's tricky. Um, one of them is there are, there are situations where you end up with ELO inflation over time, regardless of whether this, the skill level improves. I mean, basically every time a new player enters the system, new points are entering the system that other players can claim. So it, in tennis, you end up with a situation where every time a new wild card shows up, the established players can sort of grab their points and then the wild card is never to be seen again in some cases. Um, so you, you end up with inflation that way. Um, it, it's tough because it takes a little time. 
at the beginning of the period you're studying. It takes a little time for the ratings to stabilize or become fully informed. Like, for instance, I have a database that's reasonably complete going back to the beginning of the open era, so 1968. But if you start on January 1st, 1968, with everyone with an ELO rating of 1500, then by July 1st, 1968, you still don't really have proper rankings for the players. So unless you can extend your database back to 1966 or 1967, you probably can't really tell how good everybody was in 1968. So you're always going to end up with some problem at the beginning of the time frame. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's tricky. I mean, the, 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 some of the some of the issues that people have with ELO, the 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 math underlying it is not that intuitive to me. So I don't have a good grasp on what all the problems are. But because we end up w- the type of conversation we're talking about now ends up relying a lot on ELO ratings at the very top of the scale, and I think we're I think ELO is very good at identifying who is the best, like who deserves to have those top two or three spots. What I don't think it's that good at is identifying the, the, the space between that player and the rest of the field. And that's kind of what we were talking about in that roundtable discussion a couple of weeks ago, uh, where, you ha- where you try to figure out how good Federer was in 2005 or how good Rafael Nadal is on clay. I mean, they're not really being challenged at their best. So we don't know that well, at least, at least with the way we're doing ELO algorithms now. Um, so I, I don't think that's the answer. Okay. Well, in that case, just based on looking at it, I, I agree with you and Waz. Okay. And that, that's interesting. I, I didn't think about this until uh, in, until we started comparing your answer about the top eight to the fact that I'd done the study on the top 50. Is You mentioned that back in 2005, we had, we had a lot of multi-slam winners. Uh, so we, a lot of really big names stick out on that, that World Tour Finals list. And you don't have that, that much as much now, even accounting for, for the fact that maybe Osaka turned out to be an all-time great. I don't know, just hypothetically. Um, what I think more people will agree with you on is that the field in general has improved, that the overall level of the top 50 or top 100 in women's tennis is much better than it was 10 years ago or certainly 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, I think we'd get more pushback on, on the top eight. And to me, that's really exciting. I mean, it, I think that the top few players in the field are always, they're not going to show up in a linear fashion. You're always going to end up with a sort of arbitrary number of all-time greats and sub-all-time greats, but it's going to it's gonna vary kind of randomly. But the fact that the field itself is getting better really means that the game is getting stronger. I mean, are you on board with that, Carl, that the that the level below the Elite Eight, let's say, is is noticeably stronger than it is 10 or 15 years ago? Yes. And partly that's because so many players say so, and I mean, maybe it's in their interest to say so to to defend against criticism of tough losses, but it, it just seems objectively like there are so many players who are dangerous and so many really high-quality matches early in tournaments. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, even the fact that someone like Serena still gets challenged. I mean, maybe Serena in 2018 isn't the greatest example since she's coming back from from so much time off but she gets her share of just dominant victories of course but she, i don't think she's ever had a run like Steffi graf had for for years or monica Sellis had for a while when it was a victory just to win a game 
off of her. I mean, some of some of Steffi Graf's uh, major titles are just ridiculous to to look at the scores that took her to the final. It's just love and one, love and love, love and two, and at her very, 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 very best, Serena can do that, but. I think it's almost impossible for a player to pull that off anymore just because the, the field is too strong. There's going to be somebody lurking who, who you can't beat that easily. So let's see. Another kind of big question I wanted to talk about, it, it, we haven't had a, a really deep dive into tactics for a while. That's something always lurking beneath the surface of Carl and my conversations. Um, hopefully we'll get a chance to dive into some more, uh, more techie tactical conversations in the, in the off season. But since we're talking about the world tour finals and we've got our focus on eight of the best players in the world, I'm curious, Carl, who sticks out to you as the best tactical player of the eight women in Singapore? I think was. And what makes you think that? It's just the body of work over her whole career, what she accomplishes despite the weakness in her game of having having such a non-aggressive forehand and seeming to have a knack for putting the ball and the opponent in places where the opponent doesn't want to be and doesn't want to have to hit it. Sometimes when her opponent thinks she wants to, to hit it there and and when you know against any other player would be a winning shot but instead it just sets up a great defensive reply that ends up winning the point so i i think there's a bias inherent in the question at least in my head of players who are more defensive and have longer rallies hit more total shots and are hitting fewer shots that are intended to end the point so they they just have more chances to seem tactical but I just think based on the outcome she's had, the weeks at number one, the Australian Open title this year, and and what I've seen with my own eyes, that she strikes me as the most tactical. But it, it's overall a pretty tactical bunch, which isn't surprising given that we're talking about eight of maybe the nine or ten best players in the world. Yeah, I, I thought you might mention Wozniacki. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Um, and you make an interesting point and in that particularly interesting because I was going to make it myself that, (laughs) (laughs) that, yeah, there's a, there, there's a, I don't want to call a bias isn't quite right, but let's call it a bias anyway, that, that, yeah, you tend to look at players who are, are, are making it longer in rallies because the sorts of things that, that commentators tend to talk about as being tactically good are things that happen later in rallies, like the decision to come to the net or like choosing to hit one type of volley instead of another or letting a, letting a smash bounce or, all sorts of things. If, if you're Carolina Pliskova, then you'll do those things occasionally, but you don't do them as much as Wozniacki does because you don't play as many seven to ten shot rallies or longer rallies. And I, I mentioned Pliskova not by accident because just a couple hours before we started recording this, I watched the, the Pliskova's first match in Singapore, which coincidentally was against Wozniacki. And I already knew we were going to be talking about this, so maybe there's some sort of recency bias going on here too. But I I was blown away by how tactically strong Pliskova looked to be. Um, I th- I think there's definitely some bias going on here because she she looks great in some matches and not so good in others. And this is one of the times she did look very good. I think she won the match two and three or something. Um, so she beat Wozniacki pretty handily. 
And in the long rallies, she seemed to be making the right choices. But she also seemed really savvy in how to use the weapon she has. And when we've talked about this before, Carl, I think you've pointed out that Isner seems to be very tactically sound because he kind of has to be. If his, if his serve doesn't go for an ace, then he, he doesn't have a lot else to work with. Uh, and to a lesser extent or a less extreme extent, Pliskova is the same sort of thing. Like she, she seems to make very wise choices about when to go for broke, unlike someone like maybe Kvitova who just always goes for broke. So Kvitova can be very aggressive. She can be more passive. Um, and at least from what I saw in yesterday's match, sorry, did you mean Pliskova can be aggressive, can be more passive? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, yeah, Pliskova has the variety of, of tactics she can draw on, and at least in, in what I most recently saw, she seemed to be able to deploy them very intelligently. I mean, that, that's a really dangerous combination. Part of the reason that I'm skeptical of my conclusion is because based on how she looked yesterday, I don't. it's, it's the Pliskova who you expect to be number one and expect to win slams, and for the most part, she hasn't really done that. Um, but Carl, how do, how do you think we would handle that bias you mentioned? Like, it... If we wanted to give Kvitova or Pliskova an equal shot at being judged the, the the best tactical player of the bunch, how do we how would we think about that in a way that doesn't end up putting our focus on the players who are playing longer rallies? Well, I think the shorter rallies are so defined by the first three shots and. As you mentioned, we're perhaps trained by TV commentary not to focus on those from a technical point of view. Like, oh, that was an ace because she's tall or she um, has, you know, practiced that serve a hundred times. Not because she realized that in this moment her opponent would be leaning the other way. And even if she didn't hit it perfectly, she would probably get an ace or a service winner if she got it in the box. Um, And... That seems like maybe harder to measure just from watching. Like maybe we need more data to to help us see that. Uh, partly because serves are are hit so hard and from such a different position and, and situation on the court. And yeah, maybe it's just retraining our minds to to see those those shots as tactical. But we do sometimes hear about players who are really good about mixing up their serves and disguising their serves and because it's clearly the most important shot in the in the sport and the return is clearly the second most important shot we should be able to to analyze those more closely and appreciate them more i think that the expression serve bot has really impaired the cause though of seeing seeing serves as as a as a chess game and not as just a power game yeah i mean and i think some of those players who've earned the term serve bot are a little bit responsible for that. I mean, and some of them are savvier than others, let's say. I think if you come through the ranks as a player who can hit a lot of aces, then at least for a little while early in your career, you're not really incentivized to be that smart about it because you will hold just by virtue of being really tall and strong. Uh, I think Isner's definitely beyond that, but I'm not sure we can say that about everybody. Well, so Raonic, is, I think, is is brilliant with his serving, and he's doing similar things from a much shorter height. Well, he's still tall, um, and I think we've we've seen players who can bomb serves, but show us what it looks like without 
as sound tactics or as great placement, which are, are very closely tied, uh, you can you can want to hit with great tactics, but if you can't actually aim that well, then I guess it doesn't count for much. But I'm thinking of like Sam Groth had a giant serve and was often easier to handle for returners than players of similar height because he was hitting more centrally, more predictably, less less spin. Uh, and can I tell you this right now on this podcast, scientifically, analytically, like I've checked? No. So this is somewhat <laughs> anecdotal uh, and somewhat based on his results and, and peak ranking and so on. But uh, I, I do think that that the players you're you're maligning were just used to maligning, and it's it's not obvious that they're just bombing the serves. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I think often the maligning comes from not having any respect for the rest of their game, which is more likely to be accurate. Um, because certainly Isner or Ronich or maybe Kevin Anderson, we can throw in this basket. If they didn't have the serve, we wouldn't be talking about them very much. Uh, that doesn't mean they aren't very smart about deploying a world-class weapon that makes it even smarter. Um, but you're, you, I mean, where you started was absolutely right. That I mean, servebot makes it sound like a robot, pretty obviously. And yeah, they're they're not that. If if you are a robot about it, maybe you end up like like Sam Groth. Uh, another, this is an interesting thing I picked up from. I, I watched the Antwerp final between Gail Malfi's and Kyle Edmund last night, and. I think Ravi Uba was the commentator who I really enjoy his commentator commentary. He does a really excellent put job. Put Ravi on TV. Yeah, or just put him in as many booths as possible. Um, he, I think it was him who pointed out that Monfis had a match, maybe you remember this, Carl. Monfis had a match where he held Ivo Karlovich to no aces. Do you have any recollection of this? I don't. Wow. Okay. It, we should we should check. I should have checked before I started recording because I knew I was going to bring this up because it just was it a tiebreak tens match? <laughs> Maybe tiebreak tens, yeah. Maybe a practice tiebreak. Um, but th- the point is, there there are players who are are so good at anticipating and making quick initial movements that they can hold even Ivo Karlovic to to no aces or close to no aces, and presumably Ivo Karlovic is pretty smart about how he deploys his serve. He said. 20 professional years to become more savvy about it. So nobody else is going to be like Ivo Karlovich, except for maybe Opelka and John Isner. So everybody else has to start from a lower level. And if, if someone can essentially can negate a lot of the serve advantage that Karlovich has, then yeah, you've got to be smart to, unless you want to turn every returner into a a brilliant tennis, a brilliant tennis talent like Gail Malfi's. I think you once studied who was the best at preventing aces generally, and that Monfils was number one. Oh, okay. I completely forgot about that. The only thing I remember from that study is that a, a couple of short guys were the worst. I think that was back when uh, Olivier Rokas was playing, and I think he was the worst at preventing aces, and I assumed that was because if you're that small, then you end up guessing more, and if you guess, then... When you guess wrong, you don't get your racket on the ball. Yeah. Monte Carlo, 2008, it's a little over 10 years ago. Monfils beat Karlovich in straight sets. No aces for Karlovich. The first set went to 10-8 in the tiebreak. So Evo got to 10-8 in the tiebreak without hitting an ace. Well done, Evo. Got to figure there's a bunch of service winners in there. But still, yeah, well done all around. 
Um, so this this is a yeah. A well pretty, done, Ravi Uba. Yeah, well done, Ravi Uba. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, I I know on this podcast and pretty much every format in which I speak to the public, I can be dismissive of commentators and more than I mean to be, since I know it's a it's a tough job and a lot of the people doing tennis commentary are very very good at it. But um, Ravi, in particular, lately I've been really impressed by. So if you're listening, Ravi, kudos. If you're not listening, then you really should listen to our podcast. Um, speaking of Ivo Karlovic, a couple of other fun facts about him. He, he just won the Calgary Challenger this past week, and he's four months short of his 40th birthday. So he, he becomes the oldest player ever to win a Challenger. And I also wrote a post on the Tennis Abstract blog about him a couple of days ago, noting that he's more than half of his sets this year across all levels, challenger, qualifying, and ATP tour. 53% of his sets are tie breaks this year. And most people are probably hearing that and thinking, yeah, of course, it's Karlovich, whatever. But this is the first time ever that any player has, if he's in a full season, assuming Karlovich keeps this up, in a full season has more than half of their sets end in tie breaks. Uh, it almost n- no player almost ever ends up with with more than forty percent. It's pretty rare even end up with thirty percent. Isner did fifty percent on the dot in his first season, but Karlovich is at fifty three, which is pretty stunning stuff. Um, what I found in that article was that his serve has pretty much re- remained the same as as effective as it's always been, but his return has really taken a negative turn. And Carl, I'm wondering what you think about that. If if we're looking at aging trends for for tall guys, do you think that's what you'd expect that they'd be able to serve well up to age 39, but that the return is what would suffer? Yeah, I think that would make sense. Um, serve from the stationary position, a, a specific motion. You've you've practiced more times. You control the pace and can take a break in between and as you found even with the serve clock can take a a long break in between so yeah it it makes sense and and with an extreme case like evo we're seeing at an extreme age what that looks like yeah it's i mean extreme is really the only word for it um do you think that we could see john isner still playing tour matches in i don't know what is he 32 now um do you think he could still be competitive in five, eight years? Well, considering that his peak level and career accomplishments are ahead of Evo's, maybe he'll still be going in 20 years. I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it depends also on John's appetite for the game. I think it's a bummer for him that the deeper he goes into tournaments, the harder it is to watch college football. Uh, <laughs> one... One point on Evo, just to really appreciate the statistical brilliance of his 2018 season, not only is he going to all these tiebreaks, he's 30 and 30 in the tiebreaks. So really nice symmetry, real coin flip material. His overall points won, he's won 50.1% of all points. <laughs> and his DR, dominance ratio, is ratio of return points won percentage to a po- opponent return points one percentage is 1.00 so isn't, isn't his, evo should just go straight to like seven all in the tie break and his one loss record i think going into the calgary challenger his one loss record was 
almost 500 as well. Uh, yeah, it I, looks like now it's 22 and 21. Okay. So, yeah, it's um, it, it it's a pretty amazing season he's having. He's he's mastered the art of, of tying. And that's a good segue to our our last topic, which is the that Wimbledon has implemented what John Isner wants to call the Isner rule. So <laughs> in, in response, See, Isner will last in tennis for far longer than 20 years with that rate. Yes, and now none of Isner's matches will last for 20 years. That's a bonus. <laughs> um, so it, 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 we all remember the Isner who 70-68 in the fifth set match, but I think this rule is more in response to the two semifinals this year and the fact that the Isner-Anderson match went so long and, and messed with the schedule. But the, the end result is that Wimbledon will now have a fifth set tie, or a deciding set tiebreak, so third set for women, fifth set for men, at 12-12 in the final set. So it's sort of a compromise between the U.S. Open's approach of just playing a tiebreak set and the other slams approach of playing the full advantage set and letting the chips fall where they may. Um, what's How do you feel about this, Carl? Do you, do you think this is a good move for Wimbledon? I'm fine with it. I mean, I I appreciate that 70-68 happened. And and it's it's why Isner deserves at least half the name of the rule. Uh, I think the end of the Isner Anderson match was pretty dismal to watch. I, I do think there's so much recency bias. I think it's it's the fact that Isner Anderson went long, combined with Anderson Federer going long, combined with Nadal Djokovic going long, although not that long, but going past six all in the fifth. Uh, I I would love to see an exception to these changes for finals. I mean, players don't have to play the next day or two days an even bigger match when they're playing a Grand Slam final. And I wouldn't have wanted to see Federer Roddick in 2009 have to go to a tiebreak. You know, all things considered, if I were the czar of tennis, I probably would have not changed the rule. But it it just doesn't, it seems like not that big a thing to lose. The U.S. Open doesn't feel like a less of a slam to me or I think anyone else because they play a fifth set tiebreaker at 6-all. Yeah, I and yeah, you're you're right to point out the the recency issue with the Kevin Anderson matches, and I, I think Stephanie Kowalczyk posted a couple things about this on Twitter. We're talking about a tiny number of matches. I mean, it, they happen to be very pro, high profile this past year, but a very very small number of matches will be affected by having a tiebreak at twelve twelve. Now, what what really bugs me about this is it's. It's a compromise, and it invents, as far as I know, a completely new rule to tennis. I mean, it's understandable. It's it's not anything that innovative, but I don't think there have ever been tiebreaks played at 12-12 before. Um, we have Wimbledon deciding to have a, their own individual rule. It really isn't that different from just playing the tiebreak at 6-6. I mean, if, if, you're, if two players have made it through five sets, and they're at 6-6 in the fifth, then... They're even. I mean, a, playing a tiebreak at that point isn't that much different than literally tossing a coin. And to me, Wimbledon deciding to go 12-12, I mean, like I say, it's not that many matches. It's not going to be that offensive in practice. But it seems like Wimbledon can't just say, you know what? The U.S. Open solution is good enough. Or what we're doing now is good enough. We have these two solutions that are out there that 99.9% of the time are working fine. And Wimbledon's solution is to come up with a third one that is also probably going to work fine, but not any better than a, 
either of the other two. I mean, to me, I don't have a strong feeling about whether to just play the advantage set the old-fashioned way or to go with the U.S. Open's compromise, but I think they're both perfectly good solutions. I do think, Carl, what what you just threw out there is it keeps coming up as a logical solution to just play, let the finals be longer matches or uncapped matches. In this case, it's having the final have the advantage set. Uh, in other cases, it's having the final be a five-setter. Um, so many of these issues about whether we should play five sets, whether women should play five sets as well, uh, whether men's matches should switch to three sets for scheduling or health or whatever. So many of these issues end up with at least the proposal of just going back to playing five set finals or introducing five set finals for women in that, in, at those same tournaments. And that increasingly seems like a good idea to me. I mean, it, it would solve Wimbledon's issue for one thing, either have the five set tie break in early rounds or, um, just play best of three but then yeah like you say let them go in the final there's no scheduling concerned there's no next match to be ready for so and these are the two best players of the tournament in the biggest match that the most people are watching let's have more of it yeah absolutely and and also a final i think we talked about this in maybe in some conversation talking about davis cup that one of the things that's so great about the old davis davis cup format is that you focus 100% on the match that's in front of you right then. And that only really happens at slams when you get to the quarterfinals or so, or maybe even the semifinals. So when when the eyes of the tennis world are on one single match, then yeah, let's play five sets. Let's have an advantage set in the fifth. Let's let this go as long as it needs to go to truly decide a winner. But if you're in the third round of a Grand Slam, then, I mean, the eyes of the world are on... 18 different matches if you're watching on your favorite live score app so you don't need to do that and there usually is going to be uh, a gap of skill between the players so it won't ever come to that and when it does it probably won't even matter that much because as we all remember after Isner Mahu Isner could barely stand to play his next match so I mean it didn't end up against Debacher for all you trivia nuts <laughs> yeah against the all-time great Timo Debacher uh, so it doesn't end up affecting the tournament. You make whatever rule you want, it's not going to affect the course of tennis history, whereas the way we play finals is what really matters. So, And, and that's how yeah, I felt probably. about Nadal-Djokovic. It was a great match, and it ended up being, I think, uh, 10-8 or 11-9 this year, and you know the Federer... Or Nadal Federer, 2008, that was 9-7. But I think people would not have minded if those matches kept going until one of the guys could pull ahead by two games. Yeah, and I guess another factor is I can remember watching it, I, uh, the Nadal team match at the U.S. Open went to a fifth set tiebreak, right? Yeah. That was a thrilling tiebreak. I mean, that yeah. was really, really fun. Like, I guess if you're a true tennis purist, then maybe you could sit through that tiebreak and hold your nose and say how bad it is. But you've got to be trying really hard not to enjoy that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's fine. Players have still worked incredibly hard and given you an unbelievable show to get to that point. So I feel like that's that's good enough for me. It ought to be good enough for for uh, the players and the tournaments as well. Jeff, quick assignment for you. We want to know the odds of 13-12, parentheses, 70-68. Oh, 70-68 in a tiebreak. 
Yep. I'm guessing those odds are pretty low. Really low. But well, it the, would be exciting to see. No tiebreak has ever gone that long, has it? I think the longest has been something like 28, 26. Okay. Because the, the Murray Kohlschreiber one was like 25, 23 or something. And there's, there is a longer one back there somewhere. But yeah, it would, it would, it would be pretty unusual. Okay. We'll see if I can complete that assignment. <laughs> um, but it's definitely time to wrap things up. So Carl, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And everyone, thank you for listening. I think I'll be back with a guest host around this time next week. I'm headed to Basel for the semifinals on Saturday and then to the Paris Masters for a couple days early next week. So hopefully we'll be able to give you some content from there. Enjoy the rest of the Women's Tour finals as well as Basel and Vienna from the comfort of your own couches. So everyone, thank you for listening, and I'll check back with you next week.